which means that if I want to build two identical buildings side by side with a downtown, you know, downtown Toronto, uh, I lose 17% of my gross floor space if I want, or 17 additional percent if I want to build a condo compared to if I wanted to build a, you know, fancy high-rise luxury farm building. Hello, and welcome to Sink or Swim, a weekly podcast brought to you by RentSync, where we take a deep dive into the prop tech, multifamily, and rental housing industry. In each episode, we uncover the technologies and strategies used to help overcome operational challenges and increase the value of your multifamily investments. So let's get into our conversation today. Welcome back to Sink or Swim. I'm your host, Nicolina Savelli, and on this podcast, I chat with rental housing industry experts to learn how you can reach more renters, sign more leases, and maximize the value of your assets. And today, I have David Isakov, Product Manager, Data Services at RentSync, and Max Steinman, who has been recently announced as Interim CEO at RentSync, to talk to me about the new Toronto inclusionary zoning policy that is taking effect in 2022. So before we get into the new policy, David, I haven't had you on the podcast yet, so I thought that this was a good opportunity to have you share a little bit about your background and the work you're doing at RentSync. Absolutely. So in my background is as a uh, real estate consultant. I worked with developers in the purposeful rental industry to provide them with recommendations for developments. Now with RentSync, really I see myself as a data champion trying to figure out how we can help developers and marketers with, you know, the various data points that we have available to us. Great. Thanks so much, David. Um, and now, Max, you have become a, uh, a veteran now on the Sink or Swim podcast. I think you've been on at least three or four times. So I think our listeners know know who you are. But can you share just a little bit about why this is such an important topic for us to discuss right now and what it could mean for purpose-built rentals and condo developments moving forward? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, it's for a Toronto a home developer. Uh, it's one of the biggest uh, policy announcements for sure in the last uh, many years. And, uh, you know, when the government gets involved and, and changes the policy, it ultimately affects everyone from uh, those developers to renters to vendors and suppliers within the industry. And, um, this one's pretty big. It, it makes, it will make an impact uh, in a lot of areas. So I think it's very deserving of a sink or swim podcast episode for sure. Now, actually, before we got on this call, David had mentioned that, you know, it's taken them some time to get around to this policy and kind of putting it in place. Why, why did it take so long? And what do you think kind of propelled this forward? Um, if you can speak to that, maybe David, you can speak to that a little bit. Certainly. Uh, before that, let me just give you a bit of a rundown in terms of what the policy actually entails. So, like you said, they've been talking about this for the last three or so years. They've been bringing in experts from various other American markets that have existing inclusionary zoning policies, and they've been trying to basically, you know, pick and choose the various components they want to include within their policy. This new policy now uh, indicates that all new purposeful rental and condo developments uh, within the city of Toronto above 100 units will have to increase, include a component or sorry, percentage of their gross, gross floor space for inclusionary zoning units or zone units. Uh, now, this will depend on where within the city they're located. These units will have an affordability period of 99 years, which is substantial. 
I'm sure everyone is aware of. Um, and these units will, unlike conventional portable programs, will not be tied to an average or the household actual income, but will actually be tied to income percentiles. So we're looking at average incomes across large geographic areas. Right. Okay, great. So let's let's get into the policy because there's a lot of information there um, and we'll kind of dig into it. So it will apply to all new developments around major transit station areas, it, it, according to um, the document that I read. And it will initially affect 5% to 10% of floor space of new condo developments in Toronto with the goal to ramp up to 80% to 20% percent of floor space by 2030. It will also impact purpose-built rental developments, and we'll get into that conversation a little later. So what does this mean for developments already in progress? How do you think this will affect developers who had plans to build next year? Are we going to see developer developers walk back these plans? Is there is there a way to do that? Can you do that? <laughs> I think that first and foremost, we should make this clear. Developments that are already in the pipeline, those developments that are going to be uh, you know, breaking ground in the foreseeable future, this will not affect them. This also won't affect buildings who are already in the process of going in for approvals. This is only going to be affecting new developments that are going to be going out to gain approvals uh, starting in 2022. So this policy goes into effect next year. So all new developments that are have not already submitted their architecture plans uh, and various other you know municipal submissions will have to include some component of this policy in order to get approvals from the city. Okay, great. Um, let's talk about rents. You mentioned rents. Rents will be set on um, income and will be focused on household earnings of between 32000 and 92000 essentially capping rent at 30% of gross monthly income, which translates to approximately 800 to 2300 a month, which is a pretty wide gap. Personally, I haven't seen rents below 1500 a month in Toronto in a very long time. Will this affect the type of product we see available on the market at those lower rent rates? Like how, how are they going to handle um, $800 a month rents in Toronto? How do you foresee this happening? It's really going to be uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out, but I think ultimately uh, the people that are going to pay for this are not going to be the renters in affordable units. They're going to be the renters in the market rate units or the owners in the market rate condo units. Because at the end of the day, uh, the city is not offering to provide additional cash incentives. They're not providing any kind of non-monetary support to developers. They expect developers to eat the cost of these reduced units themselves. And at the end of the day, you know, just like with all taxation, the taxation taxes are passed, passed on. The buck is going to be passed on to the consumer and the cost of living for you know, your average household who isn't eligible for this exclusionary zone unit or simply someone who wasn't able to get into one of these units, they're the ones who are gonna be getting more. And, and this is the first time we've seen a policy that's sort of uh, aimed not just at low, low income individuals. Uh, you know, you see here that this can affect individuals earning up to $92,000 a year. I know there's uh, yeah. been a lot of inflation and incomes have been rising, but I don't typically think of affordable housing policies for people who are up to $92,000 a year. Uh, and so it, it's a very interesting policy in that regard. It's looking to control for a percentage of the middle class or for a percentage of you know, middle income earners. It's looking to control what their housing costs are on a monthly basis. 
Yeah, I guess, I mean, you spoke to it a little bit, David, but can you just talk about why there's this massive gap between, like, it's 32,000 to 92,000. How did they reach that? Is there any insight you can provide as to why why that gap is is so wide? Um, is it because they're just seeing so many people not being able to find housing in that in that middle income um, range? Is that what, what they're trying to, to do here? Certainly. Within the actual policy framework, they specifically called out that this policy is meant to help school teachers, nurses, those working, again, as Max put it, you know, with average incomes. These aren't low-income households. These aren't, you know, your super wealthy households either. These are just, you know, regular run-of-the-mill average income households. Um, but the way that they've actually indicated what the affordable rents are uh, is based on a conventional affordability calculation, right? They've done where they've basically taken 30% of a household's gross monthly income and use that as the as the rent that you know is applicable to these units. The problem is that instead of looking at what a household is actually achieving, they've instead decided to look at what the average incomes are within you know, an agglomeration of multiple neighborhoods. So uh, for the studios, what they've done is they basically looked at what the 50th percentile of incomes are for a one person household. And then for two, three bedrooms, they've looked at what the 60th percentile of incomes are uh, within those respective neighborhoods, right? So by averaging out and aggregating the data, that's how they basically come out to these incomes or to these uh, rental figures, I should say. I see. So do you foresee a problem with this, um, with this kind of the way they've calculated it? Or, uh, you know, is there any way that people can take advantage of this? Uh, that certainly is a possibility. I think that when this policy comes out, we're going to see a lot of uh, people, both developers and enterprising individuals testing this policy out. Uh, because it's looking at household income, it could very well be possible that you have a single individual who moves in. Uh, you know, they can't get married because as soon as, you know, you have someone legally living there, you're no longer applicable because you no longer fall under those physical credit bans, right? Or people moving in with roommates or unofficial roommates, right? Uh, I think we're going to see a lot of challenges to this policy uh, because at the end of the day, they basically fixed the rents based on average market incomes and then said, from now on every year, you're only allowed to increase the rent based on the provincial guidelines, right? We can't actually look at what the real rate of inflation is we can't even account for the fact that you may have just gotten a 30% increase in your, you know, your gross monthly income because you were able to find a better job, right? And you can imagine some of the cat and mouse games that will go on uh, now between both, um, I guess, the, the administrators on uh, the government side or the city side, uh, but also between uh, renters and uh, developers mm -hmm or landlords um, and the municipality as well. Like when the government comes in with new policy, often it, it incentivizes and creates, uh, one of the consequences is it creates these sort of cat and mouse dances. And, and you know, just an easy one to think about is, uh, let's say you're privy to, uh, you know, uh, one of the affordable housing uh, units within a, a building and your boss comes to you next week and, um, offers you a raise. Uh, well, normally you're really happy when you get a raise, but what if that raise pushes you outside of the guideline of that specific unit you were about to qualify for? And those are sort of like the reverse incentives that can occur um, when, you know, these sorts of policies exist and are built this way. And um, it will become very interesting. The other, the other side between developer and municipality is an obvious uh, workaround might be to not build uh, 
properties that are over 100 units because they are exempt from these. So do we start to see a lot more mid-rise developments or lots that get split? Um, Do we see like the trading of of two lots where uh, two developers can, you know, trade land parcels and each build 99 unit buildings? Like it's kind of crazy to think of all permutations that could occur here. Uh, in order to avoid, uh, because avoidance we know is a real thing when money's involved. You can just look at the tax code and the entire industry with uh, tax advisors and tax lawyers and, and tax accountants. <laughs> so it's going to be with the with the dollars at stake on the developer side, it's going to be very interesting to see the creativity that emerges from this. Absolutely. Yeah. Because if you think about it, I mean, what's 10 less units or one less unit when 22% of your unit has to be $800 a month versus maybe you're setting rates at $2,500 a month. So at the end of the day, you're probably making more by keeping less units uh, counted. And, and just building more luxurious units that that are actually um, more affordable because you don't have to subsidize the cost um, with the market rents, like all our market rents. So you don't have to subsidize those your, your development costs by charging more for the market rents. Yeah, and I guess the question that kind of came from the earlier answer is who is gonna be responsible for for tracking all of this down? Is, is it the government? Is it the property managers? Is it the developers? Like, how are you gonna track people's income year over year or month over month and know that they're not taking advantage? Uh, and I think that that's kind of a question that you probably don't have the answer to right now. Uh, And it's really just a theory you can have. But maybe, David, if you want to speak to that a little bit about who this is all going to fall on um, and making sure that these are regulated in some way. Um, Yeah, absolutely. So they haven't actually fully spelled out what the regulatory framework will look like around this. Uh, But what they have indicated so far is that, well, number one, developers are going to be responsible for ongoing you know, reporting, recording, and tracking, right? They're gonna be the ones who are gonna make have to be responsible to make sure that they're actually people in these units and they're the ones who are actually supposed to be in there. Uh, they've also added additional, you know, uh, amendments, I should say, uh, to try to f- fund or sell, you know, self-fund their in- internal administrative process as well. So a great example, uh, the city should receive no more than 20% of the net proceeds of sales of an affordably owned unit during the 99 years of affordability. So what that means is every time one of these units turns over or someone decides to sell, the city will actually take 2% of the sale price. They're taking this as a means of, you know, funding their own administrative process. But again, within the policy, they haven't actually explained what that money will be, you know, put towards, whether the city is going to be the one that is going to be responsible to find and assign tenants, or will that be, you know, will the owners be placed on the developer? And and again, uh, talk about the cat and mouse game that the renter can now play. Um, it's, it's creating a uh, serious incentive for a renter to perhaps understate income. Uh, if they're an entrepreneur, take cash payments. The permutations are crazy now when you consider cryptocurrency as payment. And, and all the other things that could happen to keep you in an affordable housing unit when maybe perhaps you don't deserve to be there based on the rules. Um, it's gonna be, I think the one takeaway is it's gonna be really difficult. And they're putting the burden mostly on the landlord or developer uh, to administer. And it's gonna be so difficult for them to do that 
um, based on all the potential consequences. Yeah, um, that's overwhelming, I think, for anyone to think about trying to uh, figure out that process and putting people in place and hiring people to to have to do that. That's an extra cost. Um, now, I do want to move just past this a little bit. We know that there are three distinct inclusionary zoning areas um, identified within the city. What areas have been identified and how were they determined, David? So there are three general uh, inclusionary zoning areas or boundaries uh, within the city of Toronto. The first one includes all downtown core, including parts of Midtown. Uh, the second area it includes areas like the beaches, it includes you know Eglinton, uh, and then just you know the west side. And then the third area includes you know Scarborough, the Scarborough Bluffs, uh, Etobicoke, and then areas around um, you know York University. So these three areas were basically determined based on grouping similar average market or average market rents, and then looking at uh, grouping neighborhoods by a similar sale price for new condo developments. They've also looked at a few additional components, but what they basically done is average account values and then grouped them, you know, with, you know, similar neighborhoods. Will this impact the cost of land in areas outside of these areas? Because will they be become more coveted to not have to build there? Certainly. I think this is directly connected to what Max said earlier. This is going to start, you know, it's going to create a cat and mouse situation where developers start moving further afield. They're going to try to build product that is not going to be, you know, required to include a component of inclusionary zoning units. Uh, we're going to see developers moving further out to areas that didn't historically experience substantial new development. Uh, and I think that within these areas, we are going to see some an increase in land prices. That was actually one of the reasons that they decided to uh, extend the period of ramp up. So the program, the program starts in 2022 and it gradually ramps up until 2030. Okay. And I, that was actually again, one of the reasons they provided because they wanted land prices to stabilize and increase over time gradually before they have, you know, full onus of 22% of new condo developments in the downtown core, or sorry, not 22%, but all new condo developments had to allocate 22% of their gross floor area. David, I'm, I'm curious if you know the answer to this yet, or if this is still something that's unknown, but um, what about, uh, you know, renovations or flips of buildings uh, and also uh, commercial to residential conversions, which are becoming more and more popular? Will this policy affect uh, those projects as well? It absolutely will. So within the policy framework, they've indicated that so renovated projects will not have to include inclusionary zoned, zoning uh, within the existing residential floor space. However, any new residential floor space will have to include a component of inclusionary zone units. Uh, they haven't specifically spelled out whether this includes uh, conversions from office to residential. Uh, however, uh, retrofits of existing or renovation of existing buildings, unless they're adding new floor space, will not have to include this. And I guess that would be interesting to know if, if they have to renovate 100 units in order to be considered part of it, or if it's a 200 unit building and they're renovating 10 units, if now 5% uh, you know, have to be renovated and brought to market as an affordable option. Uh, maybe you don't know the answer to that yet, but uh, our tribute details are going to come up. It's also expected to impact approximately three to five percent of purpose-built rentals uh, during the same time frame. What what is the impact of this when it comes to planning a development now? Well, uh, 
again, this creates a consequence. Uh, and I like to think that a developer is uh, generally, uh, they see themselves as good at building homes in the sky, and especially in the GTA, uh, where, where we're going further and further into the sky these days. But, um, you know, one of the many decisions a developer has to make when they have a piece of land or going to procure a piece of land is, uh, am I going to build a rental or am I going to build a condo? Uh, it's pretty obvious uh, from this policy that the city wants more developers to consider rental. Um, you can just see it right within the numbers. Uh, you know, looking at 22% uh, of potentially up to 22% of all new condo developments being affected by 2030. Um, that it is only considered uh, to be 10% for rentals. So less than half. So you look at the economic indications, both are bad for developers. Developers lose, though they will likely pass off the cost to the end consumer who's paying market rate. Um, so they'll probably be okay, um, but there may be some kind of uh, inefficiency in the process of getting there. And uh, there's just a 10% gap there. So I think whether developers like this or not, uh, the city for buildings over 100 units uh, quite clearly has made a statement that they want more rentals. Um, and that might just play into the fact that, uh, that rentals in general are considered more affordable housing. There's less quoting wealth that way, uh, less opportunity for foreign investment, even with the foreign investment tax. Um, so I think they just see that as a more efficient means to get more housing uh, and rental prices down in the city of Toronto. In your expert opinion, obviously, uh, there's a lot of issues with this. Is there any recommendations that you would give to developers who have plans to build in the GTA in the next eight years? Uh, I mean, I think we've talked about some workarounds here, but uh, maybe we can discuss this a little bit further as to what you would say to a developer who, who has plans to build in this area. Interested in being a guest on Sink or Swim or have a really great idea for an episode? Email us at podcast at rensync.com. Yeah, uh, I think first, first and foremost, absolutely. Get your approvals in right now. Submit all your plans. <laughs> Do it before 2030, right? You want to get your plans in before you have to, you know, account for, you know, gr a greater and greater loss in available floor space that, you know, at the end of the day, if you want to build a condo, today's the day to do it, not in a year, not in two or not in three years, uh, because in, you know, three, five, or in 10 years, you're better off building a rental. And that's, that's really it because, uh, I, I do want to clarify in that because it's at 10%, it's actually within zone one, 5% of the floor space, uh, which means that if I want to build two identical buildings side by side with a downtown, you know, downtown Toronto, uh, I lose 17% of my gross floor space if I want, or 17 additional percent if I want to build a condo compared to if I want to build a, you know, fancy high-rise luxury apartment building, right? If it's an apartment building, I only have to give up 5% of my floor space, whereas the condo loses 22% of its floor space. It's, you know, it's astronomical and it really does, you know, on the surface look substantially more burdensome to build condo now within the city of Toronto, at least high-rise condo. So like Max said, maybe this really is the start of boutique, small scale, luxury rental development. And maybe this is the start of, you know, kind of a, a 
descale our uh, you know reduced quality in terms of you know the luxury uh, or how would we expect in terms of the quality of high-rise development? Yeah, and, and you know just something to note for listeners of the podcast that aren't in Ontario or British Columbia, Ontario and British Columbia, in particular, Toronto and Vancouver are sort of the condo capital of, of the world. Um, a luxury apartment building development uh, for anyone in the US who's listening, they're probably scratching their head doing what these guys talking about. Like nobody builds condos, uh, high rise condos here. They all build rentals anyways. Um, so, you know, ultimately for the developer community in Vancouver and Toronto, which is a very strong, strong community, which has, uh, which are, you know, there's strong associations, uh, you know, like Build and uh, FERPA, you know, they're going to have to look at uh, just their business probably differently um, and really look to other cities, other municipalities, tour around, start to look at, at purpose-built rentals outside of Toronto. Uh, Montreal has really had a boost in, in purpose-built rentals in the last few years. Halifax has gone crazy. It's a, sort of like the purpose-built rental market of Canada um, and, and the U.S., which is, you know, cities like New York, um, which you know, are somewhat comparable to Toronto and Vancouver in terms of their... Uh, culture and, and uh, size, Chicago, you got to start going down and seeing what's going on uh, and how impressive these luxury rentals are. Uh, the city of Toronto has a bunch now too, so you don't even have to leave, uh, leave the city in order to get an idea uh, because this has already been a trend that's emerging over the last uh, three or four years. And uh, it's been a positive trend. This is, I think, just going to accelerate uh, the amount of purpose-built rental developments going. So. Um, that being said, it, I mean, this is kind of the first step for the GTA. Do you guys, David, foresee this policy being enacted elsewhere in other big cities in Canada? Have you seen anything similar um, come up? I mean, I assume if it works or if they see a positive effect from it in terms of affordability, that it may be repurposed elsewhere. Um, and that could impact, obviously, the developments in those areas as well. I think that long term, this may very well be you know, the floodgate that starts that starts the eruption, right? Uh, mm -hmm. It's really gonna it's gonna take quite some time to see what the actual market effects are on you know the availability of more affordable housing or even just cost of a market rate condominium unit or market rate apartment. Uh, I think that now that the city of Toronto has approved this, there are gonna be a lot of you know watchful eyes, you know, we're just waiting biding their time to see what we're actually going to, you know, see as an outcome from this. Uh, another five to 10 years, we may very well see another city in Ontario enacting an inclusionary zoning policy. Uh, mm -hmm. It's likely going to be a larger, more urban center, you know, whether that is, you know, Waterloo or, or London, which we really don't expect because a lot of these cities, they have substantial existing amount of available rental products. Sure. I think this is something that is going to be, you know, much more important for really urban markets with really substantial issues of affordability. Uh, and in Ontario, you know, that's Toronto. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think there's winners and losers. So, I mean, we already, we already identified that probably the economic winners here are going to be the secondary markets surrounding Toronto because Absolutely. land prices are going to go up. There's going to be more development. There's going to be more jobs. 
Um, and, you know, like it's going to be hard for those municipalities to then make themselves less competitive for developers. I, I think the timing of this is all quite interesting when the downtown core of Toronto, there's a lot of question marks around the future um, of the kind of economic hub of the city of Toronto, which is right downtown and all the, the office space down there now being uh, you know, only partially occupied and just a lot less economic activity going on down there. Couple that with, hey, maybe, you know, we are going to start developing more outside of the city to get around those policies and housing will be, you know, maybe higher quality outside of the city. Um, it could be an interesting decision for the city of Toronto. Uh, and we'll have to wait many years <laughs> to see what the effect of this is. That's, that's always the case. These types of policies at uh, development cycles come into place. Um, with that said, are there any benefits for developers to build a product in these areas? Uh, is there anything that they're, you know, you've said that a lot of this is just going to fall on them to to do this. Is there any monetary benefits? Are there any uh, things that they're kind of incentives to doing this um, and, and building in those areas, David? Unfortunately not. Uh, the city has indicated that they are not planning on providing any kind of monetary you know, benefits. They're not planning on subsidizing value. Uh, and they're also, they've indicated specifically that they will not be providing additional density allowances for, you know, uh, for developers to actually, you know, reach their inclusionary uh, zoning requirements. So what that means is, again, the onus is exclusively on the developer. And the city has made this perfectly clear, not just, you know, with the way that the plans are, you know, drawn up, but throughout the entire process, you know, I was there, I went to several of these meetings where the city was trying to get, you know, uh, the public's, or, you know, relevant stakeholders' opinions on this. And... They were uh, very, you know, obviously hostile towards condo developers. Like this, the, this entire policy was meant to target condo developers because they see condo developments as, you know, the root cause of, you know, our housing shortage, the lack of affordable housing, and they think that this program in and of itself will solve this issue. And unfortunately, I don't see it that way. It will certainly provide more, you know, market rate or more affordable units in the city of Toronto, which is great. Uh, but this is not a one-stop shop solution. This is not going to fix all of our problems. I see it a little different. Uh, one, I think that the market will regulate itself. So like it or hate it, uh, land costs uh, for large potential developments may take a bit of a hit. Um, and so should regulate itself and the, the same level of profitability should be uh, attainable and for the developer. Again, it's going to get passed back to the market renter. Um, but I actually think this could long-term, when we look a decade or two decades out, uh, be highly beneficial to the developer. Um, and the reason I see that is because the Toronto area has been the hottest rental market or non-rental market, the real estate market in North America for like the last three decades. It's been absolutely on fire. Um, I think one of the things that probably the city is totally wrong is that the fact that there was such an emphasis on condos and development here actually built out a very wealthy middle class in Toronto. It has been an economic driver for us. It spread wealth away from landowners and developers into a lot of individuals' hands. Maybe not as many as everyone wants, but 
uh, that is something that's different than a New York or a Chicago, where most buildings uh, are, are um, rentals. But if you, if you think about the opportunity cost of all of those developers uh, through the last three decades for building condos and not rentals, uh, they made a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. They made lots and lots of money if you're developing the last three decades of Toronto. They would probably be sitting on a lot more assets and overall net wealth um, if they had built rentals. And so believing in the city, believing in the Canadian economy, I have to think that this is going to force more developers into building rentals and maybe they're going to be less profitable week over week or day over day or year over year. But we're going to be sitting back 20, 30 years from now and going and looking at some of these developers and their holdings and going, holy smokes, they're you know, empires now because they've built so many rentals. So long term, I actually think it could end up benefiting us, uh, benefiting developers if the economy, business environment stays really strong in Canada and in Toronto. I, I'd like to talk a little bit about what, you know, Rensync bring it all together and talk about the impact of marketing services for these developments. How do you think that that's all going to impact marketing? And I, I, I'm, I think there's a lot of things that will impact marketing. So Max, maybe you can lead, lead this question a bit. Yeah, I think that it's likely we will see uh, continued, and I say continued because it's already sort of been happening for the last three years, but a continued shift towards condo, they call it a development community, building rentals. Um, and as a result, I think you're going to have to see a, a shift in the skill set of these organizations. There is a huge uh, industry in Toronto uh, around uh, for sale marketing uh, and for sale and condo uh, lease, uh, not leasing, but uh, brokerages and, uh, and marketing efforts. Uh, and uh, rental's not the same. It's not the same unit economics. It's not the same uh, process in terms of marketing and selling, in this case, leasing. And there's gonna to have to be a skill set shift or adjustment for a lot of these developers who are going through it for the first time. Uh, it's, it's an area that we're really familiar with and, um, and can certainly help these companies with, um, forward to helping these companies with. Uh, so that's the first thing. Um, I also think uh, it could be very interesting. It's an interesting problem when you think of it kind of from you know, a thousand foot view. Um, with luxury uh, over 100 unit developments that uh, now you've got a, a in a condo uh, position, you're maybe trying to sell $1 million plus condo units that also have the, uh, you know, 20% of the building as affordable housing. And, and whether that should be kind of uh, uh, viewed as a negative or not, uh, I think a lot of consumers will feel uncomfortable about that. And that's a, a marketing challenge that, that, uh, that, you know, and a, and a branding challenge that a lot of marketers will have to go through. And on the rental side, it's the same thing. It, it's, you know, we, we've just started to uh, kind of build a new level of product in the city uh, for rentals. 
And you have to wonder if that will continue or if this will move the needle more towards like a B plus asset class or A minus asset class because it's hard to bridge the gap between somebody who's going to be paying $3,500 a month for a two bedroom when they don't feel comfortable about the fact that there's people in that building who are only paying, you know, 1200 bucks a month or $1,500 a month. Um, and there's that perception that's going to be really challenging to deal with. And uh, I think at the end of the day, that's going to cost money too. Uh, you're going to have to invest into that problem and invest further into marketing in order to get your, your um, the, the right messaging across and make. And I mean, this is a very uh, extreme um, uh, metaphor, not metaphor, uh, example of kind of this, but I don't know if anyone's watched like the Cecile Hotel documentary and they have the one where it's the students coming in and they've kind of got nice luxury loft apartments in there. And then you've got this like Cecile Hotel, which is a completely different atmosphere, a completely different um, brand completely and it's like is that what they're going to be up against is that how how these buildings are going to be segmented now um which you know you're going to have to hire two different marketing teams to basically cover the the spectrums of those the, those two areas it, that's a fantastic analogy um, and kudos for coming up with that on the spot because that's that's very much the problem um and whether it's you know, deserves to be the problem or not. People, some people will look at it that way. Uh, keep in mind, this is not low income individuals. Uh, you know, no. as David said, the policy is aimed at you know, nurses, teachers, middle earners, right? Uh, average salaries. And so it shouldn't really be looked at like that, but no. it, it will create resent. Like there's no doubt there's all sorts of resent that it will create between residents. Um, not that they'll necessarily know or have the ability to know, but they'll know 20% of the building or 5% of the building is, you know, that they're subsidizing those people in their own community. And, and I think one of the saddest things about this policy, uh, if it's not handled correctly, is that I think it creates a larger rift between the typical landlord and the typical renter. And mm -hmm. this is always something that's played out in, in the media um, and is a real problem. And I think we were starting to see that relationship turn a little bit in the last few years with some of these luxury rental buildings and just purpose-built rental in general, luxury or not, and, and an emphasis on customer service and being a good landlord and that being a competitive advantage in the market. And the view shifting from, you know, that that renters are just like, you know, annoying people that live in your building to uh, these are our customers. And I can't help but think that this is not going to help the industry move forward towards having better customer service for renters. So I'm, I'm also concerned about that. Yeah, I mean, I even feel with that Cecile uh, Hotel example, it was the same thing. The customer service on one side was very different from the customer service on the other side. And people were basically able to run rampant in the in the other side of the hotel. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I obviously that's a very extreme scenario and ho hopefully that doesn't happen. I just think that this 
income gap is gigantic of what they're trying to provide affordability for. And um, it could cause a lot of the issues that that you've just uh, gone through. So I want to kind of wrap this up now with some parting words, thoughts uh, on what you expect Toronto developers to do now that these uh, policies have been passed. Well, let me uh, let me start off quick. I know uh, Max, you've had tons to say about this, but I think overall, I think this is going to motivate you know more rental development. Um, I think you are right. Long term, this is going to benefit the city, but I don't think it's going to be you know the solution to our affordability crisis. I think all this is going to do is it's going to change where development or where we have new developments coming up. It's going to incentivize you know the revitalization um, or even gentrification of different communities within the city. Uh, I think the city is going to have to, you know, keep up to their five-year plan to, you know, revise their view. Uh, and I think long-term, we're just going to have, you know, more purpose rental in the city. Max, any parting words, any last thoughts on this? <laughs> yeah, I've got to double down on the theme there, uh, which is um, for your average condo developer, uh, I think you really got to start to look at Rental. You probably have already been looking at it because of the way things have trending uh, been trending in the last few years. Um, but now, with a with a you know, heightened uh, level of seriousness, um, and uh, to your average apartment building developer, um, it doesn't you know it doesn't change things too much, uh, other than maybe the. Quality, the overall quality of the building that you're going to develop if it's over 100 units. Um, you just really got to look at the feasibility and, and uh, do the you know, unit economics um, and pay close attention because you've got this coming. And um, otherwise, you know, it's, it's, there's going to be more of you. <laughs> it, could, it, it could increase competition. So, you know, be be ready for that as well which i guess marketers should be aware of as well if there's more competition it's going to need to be more creative out of the box thinking with with your marketing so yeah uh well on that note uh david max thank you all for your thoughts and your insights on this topic i'm sure we'll probably have to revisit it hopefully not in five years maybe a little earlier than that and see what's going on um and and how everything has taken shape so thank you all for joining me on this episode of sink or swim and until next time, keep swimming. You've reached the end of another episode of Sink or Swim. Make sure to visit us at rentsync.com forward slash podcast to access show notes, key takeaways, and where you can sign up to our newsletter to receive free bonus content. If you found value in the show, please also remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Thanks for listening.